Hello and welcome to the Bedroom Studios podcast, the podcast where we talk about what goes on behind the scenes in a musician's world and bridge the industry gap by bringing their stories, expertise, and advice to early career artists. Subscribe to join us for a fun chat about life as a creative person, tips and tricks for pursuing an artistic career, navigating the industry, and more. I am your host, Emma, and today I will be interviewing Steph Haynes. And Steph Haynes is a musician and producer living in Toronto, specializing in woodwinds and electronic wind instruments. Steph is a frequent collaborator with artists of many different genres and musical backgrounds. So, hello. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how, how are you? How's everything going? I'm good. I'm a little out of breath because I biked here at top speed. And <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of construction on the way, which is not uncommon, but I'm still, you know, still catching my breath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess we'll just jump right into it. Um, I want to start with just having you sort of share your a bit about your journey to pursuing music and like when when you first started becoming interested in music and how that sort of led to where you are now. Yeah, sure. So I guess if we want to go way back, um, my parents, they put me in music classes when I was like four and uh, those classes were called Kodai and that's like, oh. an, yeah, you're probably familiar as yeah. you know, someone who knows about music education and stuff. Um, but for those of you listening who maybe don't, it's a uh, it's a music education program for like younger kids that encourages like play and um, I don't know anything you want to add to that as an, an expert. Yeah, um, I wouldn't call myself an expert in it. Um, there, it had it's really based on solfege, right? Mm-hmm. Solfege singing. I remember doing a lot of drawing and placing notes on felt staves, and, mm. and that was fun. And when I got to be too old for that, I did uh, violin lessons for a couple of years, but. I didn't really uh, click with the instrument. It, um, you know, it could have been because I was eight years old, and <laughs> it's hard to do things well when you're eight. But uh, eventually, um, I stopped doing violin lessons, and I started doing saxophone lessons. And what brought me to that was uh, my brother, who is a pianist, has like a uh, he had like a really big interest in jazz, and you know, continues to. And he introduced me to Dave Rubeck Quartet and Paul Desmond, and I heard Take Five, and like I was like wow, that saxophone sounds amazing. So when I was like 11 or 12, I think I started uh, taking saxophone lessons. And um, yeah, the, between, uh, you know, listening to the the jazz that my brother introduced me to and listening to like jam bands and rock and roll stuff that my cousins introduced me to and hearing the saxophone in those contexts, I was like, yeah, saxophone, it's where it's at. It's what I want to do. I want to play in bands. I want to, you know, make music. So um after playing saxophone for a couple of years, um, my mom's friend's son, who, fun fact, used to be my babysitter, um, <laughs> invited me to uh, um, sit in with this band, uh, which was called Infunctigation, uh, which later changed its name to Freak Motif, and I've been... Uh, <laughs> I, love I love both of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've been, I've been making music with them, uh, you know, since I was... Uh, 14 and uh, we've got a couple of EPs and a couple of albums out and we've performed all over Canada and uh, that's been a good time hasn't been super active lately because the band members keep having children Um, so you know that gets in the way but uh, in my like 
early teens, that was like my first introduction to uh, not only performing live, but making music in a recording studio and like putting albums out. And um, that just uh, was a lot of fun. And it reinforced my conviction that music is what I want to do. So uh, fast forward a couple of years, I get my jazz performance degree at Humber College. And uh, then I just graduated from U of T in music technology and digital media, actually. So Congrats. that's kind of uh, where I'm at right now in my education. And along the way, I've like, played in a lot of bands and made a lot of music with a lot of people. And it's been a great time. That's awesome. Yeah. So do you find that being in the band with your your mom's friend's son, which I guess mm-hmm. is your friend now. Uh, yeah, he definitely <laughs> um, is. Did, <laughs> Shout outs. <laughs> do, do you find that that was where you started getting into production or was that was it more like when you were studying in Humber like yeah yeah I wish that's when I started getting into production but that actually happened um way later um that actually didn't really happen for me until uh you know COVID pandemic times Mm -hmm. and I was like well you know I'm not really spending much time performing live right now so uh that's when I really started um checking out music production and getting into Ableton and making beats and other stuff like that. But I remember when I was getting really into that thinking, wow, you know, finally, like, if only I had this when I was in high school, Mm. um, it'd just be like, it's the perfect vehicle for self-expression for me. And I remember back um, in the early days of like trying to create music using software, using stuff like Sibelius. And, you know, that's like not the best sounding program. And I find that it really limits it's it's like it's for making sheet music you know mm. it's not for like expressing you know musical subtlety or anything like that um, yeah there's only so much you can do with it in terms of how it sounds in in a record recording yeah for sure and um yeah but you know multi-track recording yourself uh like even if it's just super rough that you know, it's a much more much more musical way to uh experiment with music and try out ideas and stuff so mm. yeah wish I had gotten there sooner but it did actually take me a long time yeah I, I the exact same thing happened with me where it's like once the pandemic happened it's like oh I have time to explore this thing mm-hmm. yeah I, I know a lot of people have the same uh have the same story it's not uncommon at all yeah that's I was that's actually really surprising though because just like listening to your stuff and what you've been able to do I I just assume that you've been doing it for years and years thank you yeah. um well I've I've had good teachers I mean um there's you know a huge difference in the music that I'm putting together now after studying music technology at U of T for two years mm-hmm. and the music that I've put out before um but you know I've uh certainly uh (laughs) yeah I worked hard at it so I'll give myself a bit of credit there (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I guess that I also something I wanted to talk about as well was UEs Mm -hmm. um because I don't know I I feel like people know you as kind of like an expert in in that so can you explain what an EWE is (laughs) yeah I could talk about that all day um so uh an EWE EWE is a acronym or yeah, I guess it's an acronym for electronic wind instrument. And uh, yeah, the uh, Iwi as a brand name is actually owned by Akai. So uh, when people say Iwi, they're usually referring to that specific instrument that's made by Akai, but there's actually quite a few different uh, um, 
I like to call them digital wind instruments to sort of uh, differentiate there. There's actually you know quite a few out on the market these days, um, and it's actually like a, a quickly growing niche, and more and more people are becoming interested in it. Um, even though they've you know been around since like the 70s or the 60s, mm. even uh, I think the first patent goes back to the 40s. But the the first uh, performances on it were probably in the 60s on an instrument called the Lyricon, but. Uh, that is probably not what you wanted me to talk about. <laughs> no, it's cool. Like, <laughs> these are things like I, I just have no idea about, and I'm sure a lot of people don't know about. Yeah. I didn't know that an EV existed until I met you this right. year. <laughs> yeah, it's super niche. Uh, it goes super deep. Um, but, yeah, I, um, you know, I got into them because I saw one at a um, musical instrument store at Long McQuaid, actually. And I was like, that looks cool. <laughs> and so I I played it, and I wasn't super impressed. It was the EW5000. Um, I wasn't super impressed with the way that it sounded, but I was like, you know, I'm going to uh, university next year. It'd be nice um, to have it as, like, an option if I want to practice, um, you know, not in the practice rooms because Humber, um, back in the day, and probably still does not have that many practice rooms. Mm. So I was preparing myself to uh, be able to practice more while not having the access that maybe I needed. Um, and that's how I got into it. But eventually I, you know, I, I would hear recordings of people playing the instrument and it sounding amazing. And I was like, how can I make my instrument sound like that? And uh, in order to like take it to the next level, I started to learn about stuff like MIDI and uh, synthesizers and um, you know, that's uh, it's been a long journey for me, but you know, after ten years of playing the instrument, I feel like I know everything that I need to know nice. to uh, to make it happen in the way that I want it to. So, so is it um, is it a MIDI controller, or can it make its own sound when it's not plugged into a computer? That's a good question, and it varies depending on the instrument. Um, the five thousand, which is what I started with, uh, it does. Both it has built-in sounds um, and it is also a MIDI controller. The built-in sounds are not great. It's uh, most people's gripe with the 5000 um, is just that the sounds they don't respond very well to breath control, which is you know kind of ironic mm. <laughs> given that uh, that's what the instrument is all about. But as a MIDI controller, it works beautifully. So that's uh, that's how I've been playing it for mm. the fa past many years. And what are the differences between? Like different types of, of EVs and like do you use specific ones for like specific genres or to get certain sounds? Yeah. Um there are a lot of differences between all the different models. Um so I'd say that the uh the most commonly used ones um for like the longest period of time, I guess, have been the uh the EWI from Akai, the Aerophone from Roland, and the uh WX5 or WX7 or WX11, which are um, Yamaha instruments, which aren't being made anymore. But the uh, main differences come in the uh, the keys. On the EWIs, they are touch sensitive, but on the other instruments, they're like actual physical keys that move, like um, on a saxophone or a flute. And some people prefer that. I personally like the touch sensitive keys because there's no moving parts, so there's no like upper limit to how fast I can play. It's just mm -hmm. how fast can I move my fingers as opposed to how fast can I move these these like levers, I guess. Um, and the other difference is in the the mouthpiece and like what kind of uh, sensors are built in there. So uh, the 
aerophones and the Yamaha instruments, they have uh, like a reed. It's not like a real reed, but it's like it's another like little plastic lever that you can manipulate with your huh. with your lip, and you can use that for pitch bend um, or other MIDI messages if you if you set it up. And uh, the Iwi kind of similarly has a bite sensor, uh, but it's not a reed. It's just like a little pressure sensor that you bite on if you want to. <laughs> so you, that's the main differences. Do you blow air into, I guess, the sensor? When yeah, play? there's a pressure sensor on the inside, and um, it uh, it senses changes in air pressure, and then it turns that into MIDI data and sends that off to be uh, processed by whatever computer or synthesizer you're using with. So, that's crazy. Yeah, so the, uh, um, the expressiveness of the instrument is... Uh, it's it's really something, and if you get your instrument, your controller talking to the synthesizer, and you get all, that all compatible and hooked up and everything, then um, playing a synthesizer is really really fun because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I can use all of the uh, all of the expressive control that I've spent years honing as a saxophone player and as a flute player. So yeah, and I guess you kind of already answered this, but when would you? choose to maybe like use a MIDI keyboard versus the the wind controller. Right. Well, that's a <clears throat> that's an interesting point. So the the wind controller um like most wind instruments it only plays one note at a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so for that reason it's it's better for you know, melodies, lead lines, stuff like that. Uh I kind of think of it as like, you know, if my saxophone had like a like a more synthesizer tone whereas uh with the keyboard, um, it's great because you can play multiple notes at once and experiment with harmony and stuff like that. Um, but it is a little bit, uh, um, it is a little bit different trying to get the same expressive control. It's certainly mm. possible, but uh, you know it requires uh, you know mod wheels and and pitch bend wheels and even like there are breath controllers for uh, for keyboard players that you can like hook up to mm. your keyboard and. Yeah, people have done uh, a really amazing things with that. I'm thinking specifically of uh, artists like uh, George Duke and Joe Zolinol, um, really great synthesizer players on the keyboard side that have uh, honestly really inspired my synthesizer playing on the Iwi. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's cool stuff. And I guess it's, it's more natural when you're playing a synth or a, like a controller that is like mimics the instrument that you play in real life acoustically. Exactly. That's the other thing. Like I'm not a very good keyboard player at all. So <laughs> if I want to play a synthesizer, it makes more sense to use, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a digital wind controller. And do they all sort of resemble the saxophone or are there some that resemble the flute? They pretty much all resemble the saxophone. Um, there are some that uh, like are, are more like a recorder. Um, and there are some that have uh, fingering systems that are kind of similar to the flute, but the flute actually presents an interesting challenge because um, instead of using your thumb to change registers like you would on a saxophone, um, you use air pressure um, on the flute to change registers, and uh, that's that's very hard to code into a um, electronic wind instrument. So. Mm-hmm. Especially um, because it can vary by player, right? Oh, yeah, for and sure. Depending on how big your aperture is and where you aim it, it like, if there's so many variables. Yeah, it. Uh, yeah, trying to trying to yeah trying to code that sort of thing into an electronic wind instrument is is tricky. So mm-hmm. for that reason, they mostly resemble saxophones. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> yeah, maybe one, one day. 
That'd be cool. Yeah. So do you design all of your own, when you're working with the synthesizer, do you design all of your own sounds for whatever you're recording and kind of what does that process look like? Yeah, I, d- I do now. Um, that's not always a skill that I had, but uh, in, in recent years, it's something that I've been uh, learning about and working on. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of it um, comes down to uh, experimenting with the synthesizer and finding out what each particular synthesizer is capable of and what sort of sounds it's really good at making. Um, and the other thing is, of course, like, what does the music need? Like, does it need like a very aggressive sound or does it need like something that's like a little bit more chill? Does it need something with like a lot of high frequency content or like something with, uh, I don't know, evenly spaced overtones over the harmonic series, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. Cool. And the last question I want to ask you in, with, in this, I guess, topic of EWEs is, do you ever perform live using an EWE? And if so, how do you, I guess, how do you set up the tech so that so that you can do that? Yeah, great question. Um, yes, I do. I have um, a bunch with Freak Motif. And uh, back in the day, I played with a band called Slamborghini. We're actually getting These back together. These band names are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't come up with either of them, but uh, they are great. Um, and with both of those bands, what I used most frequently was my laptop um, and that you know came with uh, with its own particular set of challenges um, but typically what I would do is I would run something like Mainstage or Ableton Live on the laptop and I would host um, virtual synthesizers in there and then I would just try and <laughs> put it somewhere on the stage where it wouldn't get kicked or stepped on or knocked over and uh, yeah that's uh, that's what I did and these days I will continue to be using my laptop for, you know, shows on larger stages, but if I'm playing in, like, a bar or something, or if I'm doing, like, a tour, then I think maybe I'll maybe use an iPad instead, or, like, some sort of standalone synthesizer. I have a Moog Mother 32 that might do the trick, so, um, yeah, just something that's, like, a little bit less uh, valuable, I guess, Mm. Um, but also is designed for... Um, you know, the purpose of being a synthesizer. You know, laptops are great. They do a lot of stuff. Um, I've had them malfunction on stage before, (laughs) which is uh, never fun. So there's a lot to be said for using a tool that is actually designed for a specific purpose rather than like an all-purpose tool for uh, music performance. Mm. And so this would be like MIDI controller connects to the laptop and then that would connect to some sort of speaker. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I go out from the headphone jack, but uh, usually I use an audio interface. Nice, nice. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you have an EP coming out soon. I do, yes. Can you tell us about that? Sure. It's called Gradualism. It's a three-track EP, and um, it's a little on the short side for an EP, I guess, but each track has a music video that um, sort of uh, expands on the... um, Oh, let's see. I had a really nice. I had a really nice line figured out for this. You can edit it in later, so I, <laughs> I sound smart. Um, but it expands on the narrative of each track. Um, so, yeah, two out of three of the tr- uh, tracks are out right now, and I've got the third one coming out at the end of the month. And Exciting. the yeah, the biggest thing about that EP was that every track sort of started with a randomly generated sequence of notes. 
um, going through a randomly generated synthesizer patch. Hmm. And uh, basically, that's what each track started with, and then it was up to me to sort of uh, take that material and make it into something that uh, sounds musical and makes sense. And that uh, sort of process of writing music to me was super fun, and I think that it actually allowed myself to really be myself on that EP because the randomly generated material was sort of like uh, holding up a mirror to the uh, the truest parts of my musical self in a way that maybe I wouldn't be so like freely able to access if I was just trying mm. to write music from scratch. So that's really awesome. And what did it, what did you use to generate that material? I used uh, Max for Live. There's a really nice Max for Live device. Um, I forget who developed it, but I found it on maxforlive.com, and it's called Device Randomizer L9. And basically, you point it at any device in Ableton, um, so a synthesizer or like a plugin or anything, and you like hit randomize, and then every single parameter that can be randomized is randomized. So um, yeah, things get really chaotic, but using that method, I was able to discover some sounds that otherwise I never would have uh, really thought to uh, thought to use or to create. So cool. Would recommend. Yeah. And what, were there situations where you generated something and you just hated it and just like do it again? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, there's also situations where I generated something and I <laughs> I didn't like aspects of it, so I would um, you know change it a little bit mm-hmm. or like put some EQ on there so that it would like fit in with the music. So. Um, I wasn't very strict about, uh, you know, staying absolutely true to whatever was presented to me with this, like, randomly mm. generated stuff, but uh, it was uh, really handy as a, uh, a writing prompt to mm-hmm. sort of, you know, inspire, inspire some uh, some different sounds and some different melodies and stuff like that. Yeah, because I find, like, some it's like that thing of looking at a blank canvas is it's more overwhelming than looking at a canvas with like a little dot of color, you know? Yeah. It's like sort of taking that first step is often the hardest part. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this helps a lot, I find. And it's it's nice because, uh, <laughs> you know, because it's randomly generated, it doesn't belong to anybody else. So I can still kind of mm-hmm. claim it as my own thing. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard of a lot of um, like songwriting prompts where you do randomly generated words. Yeah. And you have to include those words in the song. Yeah, that's a yeah. that's a that's a cool way to do it. Mm-hmm. Let's go through the the tracks. I know the most recent one was EMC, but what was the name of the first one that you? Uh, that was Livewire. Livewire, and that was the video with um the dancer. Correct? Yeah, yeah, Christine. Yeah. Nice. Um, and so did you did you write all of the tracks and like make all the music on your own and then bring it to, um, like people for. The music video or was there some collaborate collaboration musically well um there yes and no um you know the the typical thing in uh you know jazz and stuff is you kind of like write chord symbols and then mm. uh you just say all right here's kind of what i want you to play do whatever you want with this and uh you know if you get the right musicians together then it's going to sound incredible so that's the uh that's the approach that i took with mm-hmm. livewire i you know took the randomly generated sounds and sequences and then i thought okay what chords can i use to harmonize this material 
and I figured that out. I made like a, a little demo track, um, and then I sent it off to my musicians, and they did a much better job than I ever could playing, you know, keys and bass and drums and all that stuff. So that's nice. that's how I did that. That's cool. Um, and I guess something that I'd love for you to go deeper into is, I guess, more of the logistics between you know having an idea and bringing it to that finished product just in media where it's like yep I wrote this brought it to the <laughs> studio and then it was done but it's like there's a lot more steps within that yeah so even like with just like finding musicians have you you know were there other places that you've made connections other than school or how to how how was that process for you? Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, when it comes to, you know, finding musicians, I mean, I've been living in Toronto for coming on 10 years, eight years, nine years, long time. Anyway, um, yeah, and if you if you live in a city a really long time mm-hmm. and you're you're playing shows, you're going to meet a lot of people. And uh, I, I think for me, uh, finding people to play with uh, isn't really the issue. The issue is typically, <laughs> are they free? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, musicians but are busy. They are, but we're <laughs> we're really spoiled over here in Toronto because there's uh, so many incredible musicians doing all kinds of cool stuff. Mm. Um, and you know that's true for every city, but I think you know Toronto because because it has all of the education and it has a you know a big part of Canada's music industry. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a good spot mm. for that. Yeah. But I really feel what you're saying about. Um, you know, like all the missing steps uh, <laughs> that you don't really get to hear about in, uh, you know, in like media and podcasts and stuff, unless it's like Song mm. Exploder or something like that. But uh, yeah, there were a lot of intermediary steps in, in creating each of these tracks. And, um, uh, and and they were a challenge to create, too. And one thing that I learned throughout this whole process is deadlines deadlines are really important so um for every uh for every project that i'm setting for myself going forward i'm going to be sure to set deadlines for myself or like sketch up like a um like a week by week or like a a bi-weekly sort of like list of steps or list of goals like you know i have to have the track planned out by this point and like written by this point and like recorded by this point and uh, mixed by this point and mastered by this point and then released by this point and just kind of like working backwards from the the release date that you want to have I guess mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah there were there were definitely times where I had to say like I don't have much time to work on this so you know it this is what it's going to be and I just have to move on and like thank goodness for that because otherwise who knows if the project ever would have been made you know and I'm really happy and and proud of of what came out um and honestly if I had more time on it I'm not sure that I could have even done a better job so Mm. (laughs) that's why I feel like deadlines uh are important and you know they could be like a little bit flexible but uh like I'm I'm going to try and keep myself on track that way yeah. uh, in the future. So especially with production, there's that tendency to, you know, you could sit for hours just tweaking knobs, you know, from a millimeter to the left or right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the other thing that, that was huge was all the feedback that I got. Um, I showed the track um, to so many people 
you know, when it was like in the in the middle stages and in the end stages and I got like all sorts of uh all sorts of notes about like ways that I can improve the uh the mix or like even the arrangement and uh I would always like uh do what I could to incorporate that feedback as much as possible without uh you know totally <laughs> destroying the mm-hmm. piece of music and destroying my like initial artistic vision um but yeah that that definitely helps it's like it's like you say having people in the room who can like let you know um like encourage you but also let you know that like eh, maybe you should think about you know making this part a little bit quieter mm. like that's uh that's super helpful yeah and um do you find that when you're composing nowadays it's more sort of i guess centered around production and music or because i i i I feel like in your tracks, there's still that element of, you know, like jazz performance and playing live and improvisation, but then now it's sort of mixed in with the electronic sounds, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, Well, uh, I'm always going to be, you know, a a performer and and somebody, like, I'm always going to have that uh, that background as a performer and and a jazz musician and all that stuff, and that's always going to be something that I love about music that sort of like spontaneity and improvisation and like um you know kind of uh like organic looseness that that comes with it um but i also really love electronic music and i really love music production i just think it's uh so much fun um or at least it can be like most of the time (laughs) um so yeah mixing mixing those two things is uh is is always going to be present in my music Awesome. And you also had a performance last week with Bagels. And and you were there. Yeah, I was there. And my mind was blown. Thanks for coming out. It was, it was so much fun. Yeah, it was. That was our very first show. It was at the Cloak and Dagger. It was a challenge fitting six people onto that stage, but we made it work. Um, so Bagels is a band for, bagels, for yeah. listeners. It is. <laughs> which yes. we will link in the description. Yeah. So check them out. We'll link everything, all of your, your EP and all the socials. Yeah, so Bagels was started by um, Yoon, who actually plays keys on my EP, and uh, her friend David. And um, I forget when they started it, but they have some tracks out as a duo and to play it live they sort of got a bunch of other musicians involved and including to playing including playing the original bagels music uh, we're also playing some music by mickey lee smith who is doing vocals and violin and uh some covers as well and we'll keep developing the repertoire for that band and see what happens but i'm i'm really excited about it because um i think well to me the most exciting thing about that band is uh the skill set that everybody brings to the table. I think it's really exciting that everybody plays multiple instruments and everybody except for me is pretty good at singing. <laughs> and uh, I disagree, but go on. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that that just makes it so that we can have like a really flexible and exciting like live show. Mm-hmm. So I'm really stoked to see how that turns out. Yeah, and um, something that I really loved was how you had your own sound in the band and you brought new life into like the covers and to Mickey's songs as well. Um, I was listening back to the Spotify recordings and 
it was just like it was two completely different versions but i loved both of them yeah that was that was cool because um you know to adapt the music to uh playing with a, a live band and the people who were in the band um the both the music from bagels and mickey's music had to change like not a lot but like you know substantially um mm-hmm. and actually workshopping mickey's tunes into uh the the form that you heard the other night uh, was one of the one of the most fun parts of rehearsal i think mm-hmm. and you mentioned that you didn't rehearse for too long which is like i would never have known because it was so <laughs> polished yeah um we uh i'm not sure how many rehearsals we did maybe three maybe four but um it kind of really just came together at the mm-hmm. last minute um we i think we were only gonna have three rehearsals but at the last one we were like we should probably do another one and i'm <laughs> glad that we did and did you use was it just like you use like lead sheets with the the chord symbols is that how you I guess relayed the message <laughs> of what the songs were and all of that is or... Yeah, you know what's really funny about that band is I think everybody had their own charts that they like made. <laughs> uh, I think I think a lot of people were going from memory too, um especially, you know, Yoon and David on the Bagels tunes. Mm-hmm. Um but to uh convey that information to us, we got demo tracks um and we got charts. And then Mickey, being the very artistic person that she is, she made her own charts with lyrics and, like, you know, symbols and drawings and stuff. And uh, um, so that's what we had for for the bagel stuff. And for Mickey's stuff, we just had uh, lyrics, actually. Um, Lyrics and some chord symbols. But, uh, yeah, that was was the other fun thing is... um, just kind of seeing different ways to communicate musical information to, to each other. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool because, um, I don't know, sometimes it could be sort of daunting for me anyways, where it's like, oh my gosh, I gotta, I gotta make this lead sheet. But I, you know, I, I worry that since I don't have as much experience doing that sort of thing, it's like, oh, really judge me if it's not a specific format or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, in my experience, and it depends on the situation too, but uh, lead sheets, they can be good, but they can also be too much information for mm-hmm. for some of the covers, especially that we were doing. All I needed was the form, you yeah. know. I just needed to know we're gonna do an intro, we're gonna do a verse, we're gonna do a chorus, and then Mickey's gonna take a solo, and you know, just like sort of a you know, like point by point, like basically a list of what was gonna happen way more useful to me than a lead sheet mm-hmm. um, and same with uh, Mickey's music like I don't need a lead sheet all I need is lyrics because it's uh, you know she's an incredible songwriter and the the lyrics dictate the music yeah and uh, with the bagel stuff you know the chords are a little bit more complicated so a lead sheet was good it was nice to know like each individual <laughs> chord uh, and and have that information at my disposal so yeah it really really depends. Yeah, that's really cool. I think we can move on to our last sort of big topic, which is your YouTube channel. Yeah. Because you are a YouTuber. I am. Yeah. I'm an aspiring YouTuber. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what made you want to start a YouTube channel, first off? Well, um, I think the biggest thing was that... uh, Around 2019, I had the brilliant idea of attaching a Wii remote to my Iwi, 
so that I could incorporate motion controls into my Iwi playing. So uh, for a while with uh, bands like Cyborghini and Freak Motif, I would play um, with both my Iwi and a Wii remote, um, communicating with my laptop, talking to main stage so that uh, I could use motion controls to, um, huh. yeah, to trigger effects and stuff and basically just like, you know, make an already expressive instrument like even more expressive um, and have even more sounds and, and tools at my disposal. And I got a lot of questions about that, uh, you know, predictably. Why is there a Wii remote strapped to your iwi? So <laughs> the uh, the main purpose of the channel in the early days was just to answer that question. And uh, the first series of videos that I did, um, you know, kind of amateurly was uh, just a series of videos about how I set up that... Uh, that communication between the Wii remote and my computer, both using Mainstage as a platform and Ableton Live as a platform. And uh, despite the, you know, lack of uh, quality and polish in those videos, they were pretty well received in my like little niche wind controller community. Mm -hmm. And uh, I discovered that I really like making videos. And so I just kind of uh, kept doing it and kept uh, trying to grow the channel. And uh, I caught the attention of uh, some other wind controller manufacturers um, and uh, people who make synthesizers and software. And so they would send me their products to uh, use on the channel. And that's been really nice. I think that's the awesome. I think the biggest and uh, most rewarding partnership has been with uh, Recorder Instruments, um, which is a subsidiary of Prowell SPA, which is an, uh, an Italian company. Um, with a, a branch in the States. And anyway, they make this instrument called the Recorder, and there's a little dot after the first E. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I made a bunch of uh, demo videos for them and uh, some tutorials for them, and eventually they brought me to the uh, the NAMM show uh, last year. Wow. That was That was really fun. I got to uh, play their instrument at NAMM, and uh, it was a great time. So did they just initially just contact you out of the blue? Uh, yeah. Yeah, they did. Um, you know, they asked me if I'd be interested in uh, making a, a video for their instrument. And uh, I was like, yeah. And so I did. <laughs> and they liked it. And the partnership just kind of grew from there. That's amazing. Yeah, it's been it's been great because uh, they, they have like a relatively small but very dedicated team behind that instrument. And they were very... Uh, receptive to uh, you know some ideas that I had about like ways to you know change the firmware and uh, like improve on the instrument and uh, they were just like really fun to talk to and, and work with and I felt very respected and it was uh, it was just a great experience that's crazy that's awesome yeah I'm uh, you know as, as someone who has like just over you know 2,000 subscribers on YouTube and like you know I'm not even not even monetized yet, just the fact that they just kind of looked at my channel and took a chance on me just really uh, was, was nice. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I think 2000 is, 2000 is a lot of people. Yeah. So <laughs> it is, nothing you know, to shake a stick at. For sure. I, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I look at other YouTubers who have like, you know, numbers in like the, you know, the quintuple digits yeah. and in the, in the millions I'm like yeah 2,000 is not that much but then I imagine like all those people in a room and I'm like yeah, yeah. 2,000 people couldn't fit in this room <laughs> that's for sure um 
sort of along that topic do you ever feel pressure to like with like tiktok and instagram stuff do you feel pressure to make more like short form content versus long form content or are you sort of just going with what you personally want to make yeah i do feel uh i do feel that pressure to a certain extent but um for the most part i haven't really caved to it for two reasons Mm. uh one is that i don't i don't know if the tiktok format really appeals to me I think to be successful on that platform, you sort of have to, uh, you know, fit in with uh, what's going on. And compared to Instagram and YouTube, I think that uh, like Instagram and YouTube are a little bit more (laughs) open minded when it comes to like what sort of uh, content does well there. Um, So I'm kind of just, you know, playing to my strengths and Mm -hmm. I'm I'm trying not to, uh, you know, bend to like the lowest common denominator internet viewership culture too much (laughs) i'm i i constantly feel the pressure to make a tiktok account yeah i have one there's content on there but it's it's not doing great because i'm not doing the tiktok thing you know it's it's literally just you know vertical versions of some of the (laughs) stuff that i put on youtube and yeah no uh, i do the same thing yeah i feel like for me there's very much a difference between content and something that I make creatively and if I make too much content then I feel that I'm not being creative yeah and yeah that's a really important distinction <laughs> um, there's nothing wrong with content but you know I think we have to remind ourselves that we're trying to make art mm. first and foremost yeah I, I don't have the charisma to, to be a TikToker <laughs> I don't think yeah I don't I don't know if I do either and you know that's that's fine. Like, yeah. you know, with anything, I'm sure if I were to, like, do it and really do it, then yeah, I would go somewhere with it the same way that I did with uh, YouTube. But, you know, I don't really want to. It sounds yeah. exhausting. I'd rather... Uh, I feel like you need to dedicate so much time to it in order for it to actually be successful, where you'd get a lot of viewers... For sure. Yeah. And I'm no I'm no like expert in content creation, but you know, from what I've heard, like YouTube is not that it pays exceptionally well to begin with, but like that is the platform that tends to uh give the smaller creators the most money and mm. like ad revenue and stuff. Yeah. Do you have like a permanent sort of area that you film or a setup? Do you use lighting? Yeah. Um I don't really have too many options you know i for the most part i film in my like tiny bedroom (laughs) it's in an attic it's very small um but uh if i have uh you know some nice light coming in from the window and then i have a big ring light on my opposite side and then i have like a, a smaller ring light directly in front of me then i find that that looks pretty good on camera and um I <laughs> I discovered uh, early on that I can't put a camera on my desk because my desk is very wobbly because my mm. floor is not even. Because, um, again, you know, old Toronto apartment stuff. Um, no, so I actually have a mic stand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually have a mic stand uh, that kind of, like, goes over my desk, and I hang um, my phone off of that, and that is my camera. And uh, recently, my mom kindly sent me her old iPhone 8 when she upgraded to a new iPhone. And so now I have two cameras. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) 
get those double perspectives. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun and it's helpful because you don't have to film twice. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's a little bit more in terms of like data management and everything, but it is uh, it is worth it. And um, you know, DaVinci Resolve has some really good uh, auto synchronization um, using waveforms and stuff. Mm. So that's a really handy feature. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I guess to close off, I have two more questions. So the first question is, when you were sort of just like beginning your, your journey of pursuing music on a more serious level, what is a resource or a piece of advice that you wish you had been told at that time? Hmm. I mean, I think that my answer would be, get into music production sooner (laughs) Mm -hmm. um even if it's not like super seriously there's a lot that you can learn from um writing music and recording music so and and Mm -hmm. i will say that for me at least recording music is the best way to write music so i think uh that is um that is the advice that i would give a younger version of myself and it's the advice that uh i would give you know, students who are like seriously interested in uh, pursuing music as well. Awesome. And is there any any type of music that you can name that you're listening to right now that you would recommend that someone listen to? Wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's a, a big question. question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, or like the first thing that comes to mind. First thing that comes to mind. Uh, definitely check out my brother's new album. Um, it's called Hone, H-O-H-N. Uh, it's a self-titled album. It's uh, some really beautiful electronic music made from field recordings. Uh, that is what comes to mind, first and foremost. Otherwise... Listen uh, to EMC. Yeah, yeah otherwise <laughs> listen to my music. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, awesome. So... Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. You're the the very first interview ever. Sweet. So, yeah. Thank yeah, you. I'm honored. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bedroom Studios podcast. Don't forget to add this podcast to your playlists and like and follow us on social media at Bedroom Studios Podcast. I will also be linking Steph's social media in the description. You should definitely check out his YouTube channel and his EP. And also make sure to follow our playlists of guest music recommendations, as well as music our guests have created. Both will be linked in the description.